Howdy. I'm Kate Cavanaugh, and you're listening to The Groundwork Podcast. This begins an exploration of connectedness, looking at our own nature through the lens of nature. Mind, body, and soil. Hello, Groundwork Collective. I have such an exciting podcast for you today, but I wanted to lead this in with a really personal note about podcasting. I came to this because I really believe that storytelling is a part of what it means to be human, that it is vital to us, that it is embedded in our DNA even. I've thought a lot about how in today's world we transmit information in these little tiny bite-sized packages, whether it's a tweet or a reel or a TikTok. We are all looking for just the quickest hit of information. And in that, I think we've lost so much of the nuance and the foundation that we build when we take a long-form approach to storytelling and really allow for something to unfold where we can see the foundation and then we can see the structure that goes up around it. And then we can see how it's clad. We can get a chance to see its inner workings where I think now in some ways we just see the sheathing and we don't really see what's inside of something and understand that nuance. And I believe that nuance is incredibly important to the continuation of a cohesive society. I think in this search for long-form information, to me, podcasts feel like a modern-day campfire, a place where we can all gather to hear stories. And I think that these are stories that transmit information, and that could be from an evolutionary approach, the information of, hey, I found this great bush, it has these beautiful red sugary berries, and I think we need to know what this is and remember that. Or it could be information in terms of sharing our triumphs and our hardships and what we have learned in hopes that we can better ourselves and the collective. And so I think that we find so much of our own humanity reflected back to us in the millions of permutations of human story, that we get a chance to explore both others and connect to others outside of us, and a chance to explore ourselves through that lens of others and all of the connections we find there. And so I think that long-form story, whether it's a podcast or a book or a long-form article, is incredibly important, and especially now. I have always been passionate about telling stories. As a butcher, I really viewed it as my job to tell the stories of farmers and ranchers, to tell the stories of ecosystems and animals and the food system. And I, I still really view that as my job. But as I moved into becoming a podcast host, there was a little bit of a hiccup. I needed a skill. And that skill was being a good interviewer. 
there is very much still in me an inner child that wants to go in the corner and and get a skill as mastered as I possibly can before I display it to the world. And I haven't gotten a chance to do that with podcasting because interviewing is something that I am very much learning how to do as I move through this space with you. And so you are watching me in real time fumble and struggle and succeed in this process of storytelling and being a good interviewer and a good container for allowing a story to unfold. And I think that the first process of this for me is to really get curious about what makes people tick. And this is something that we're going to talk about a little bit with my guest today, is this deep curiosity that we have about other people and what makes them tick as humans. And I think we see this reflected to us in our obsession with celebrity culture, in our desire to read biographies, both of historical figures or of adventurers, to better understand these pieces of the human condition. Again, to see that reflection of ourselves in the millions of permutations of human story. Podcasts are really also that. It's exploring what makes people tick. And gosh, I am just so curious about this. And it's what really drives my selection of each guest that comes on here is this really burning curiosity about another human. And I think one of the points that is so beautifully illustrated in today's podcast is this chance to learn about other people's value systems. My guest today has a really strong value system. And there's a beautiful podcast with Africa Brooke that I'll link to in the show notes about discovering your own value system. And I think that this really helps us as we move through our lives to make decisions that are in alignment with what we value. And we can't know that until we've actually identified these values. Our guest today just does an incredible job of showing and leading us towards that. And I want to thank you. I want to thank you for sticking with me in this process of learning how to interview and how to uncover story, because I really view myself in this sense as a steward of storytelling, that I am providing a container for which things can sort of unfurl. And in that process is a whole back end that I'm going to tell you a little bit about that you're not really privy to. So I really had no example for podcasting and going into this, I've just kind of made my own way. I've talked to a couple of people, but one thing I never really talked to anybody about is how they prepare for an interview. And so this has manifested in several different ways for me over the course of beginning this podcast. One of them is guests and I just hop into a conversation and whatever unfolds during that time is what unfolds. I do my research, but they're not privy to that. And we just kind of let their story unfold in real time. Another way that I do this is I sort of send a document with my thought processes about a person and the ways in which I've gotten curious about them to them prior so that we can kind of get on the same page. And what unfolded in this interview was something incredibly magical where I spent some time building a document with this person and we spent weeks going back and forth and just started 
beginning to craft how we were going to let this story unfurl on the podcast and for me to really get to know them because oftentimes I'm, I'm flying rather blind into this just only led by my genuine burning curiosity about them. But here I really got to know someone and it was a really special process. I think it made for a very insightful and deep podcast. And so without further ado, my guest today is the amazing, the brilliant, the adventurous, and the just so full of wisdom, Erin Pate who owns Butterbean Studios in California. She is an artist. She is a mountaineer. She has been a farmer. She is a mother. And she is just incredible. And I cannot wait for you to hear her story and to connect to her and to connect with yourself through her story. And I think she really is going to be a force for allowing people to connect back to themselves and back to their value systems. And I want to thank you for, for letting me explore how I interview and to explore this medium of long form storytelling, where we really let things unfurl and unfold with me. And in that, I've been reading a review every week of the podcast because I'm so appreciative when you guys leave reviews, it really helps others find the podcast. It really helps us strengthen this collective of storytelling. And so doing this thing where if you leave a review on Apple iTunes or on Spotify, you snap a picture of it and you send it to me either on Instagram at Kate Cavanaugh or at Kate at West at groundworkcollective.com, I'll send you a little piece of snail mail, which is just my way of connecting. And it doesn't have to be a good review. It can be a very honest review and can be a bad review. You'll still get a very kind piece of snail mail in return. And so today's, today's review, which I think is so apropos because I think our guest is going to do just this, is titled A Podcast to Bring You Home by Mags Mini 23s. The Groundwork Podcast has a way of sharing stories that speak directly to your soul. The words of Kate and her guests bring back an ancient wisdom of tending the earth and our bodies. Mags, thank you so much, and I think you're going to love this podcast. And I just want to thank all of you for being here. And if this episode resonates with you, I really encourage you to share it with a friend, share it with a family member post it to social media so that others can find it. And without further ado, Erin Pate of Butterbean Studios. It's so funny. So in this, I, I'm torn between two directions. I, I want you to tell your story and to allow that to take place and really unfold. But I'm also curious about starting with value systems. And I think that this is something that I think a lot about is the creation of a value system and how important that can be in informing a life and informing choices that when we sort of decide on a set set values that we have and they can they can be fluid they can evolve throughout time it gives us something to refer back to as we move through life and so i'm torn between having you let your story begin your story and between really starting the story with your value system yeah i'm not sure i could i'm not sure i could um put my value system into a concise paragraph and sound awesome i think in some ways it kind of <laughs> unfolded naturally 
naturally and yeah. without a document that I've written. I've tried to put it in words. Like you've seen my children's, uh, the Patea family manifesto, you know, like, so I've tried to capture it, but I don't even know if I can give you the top five things that are my values. You might be able to tell me actually. <laughs> <laughs> I might be able to tell you, yeah. but let's, let's let them, let's let them, we can kind of let them eke out sure, through exactly. the course of the conversation too. Why don't you tell us who you are and how you got to where you're sitting? Are you coming to us from California or Montana? I am in California on the family ranch of a couple thousand acres, 120 years, centennial farm and ranch um, that grows butter beans and raises cattle. It's been in the family for four generations now and they've made a hundred or the majority of their money from farming and ranching which puts them in the centennial farm category uh and in california that's not a common thing i'm sorry i'm getting off track we also dry farm which is really no unique. you're great i'm very proud of these guys i mean this is not a quality every one of us has farmers in our families right we can go back to grandpa probably just a couple generations ago but this family stuck it out and I can brag about it because I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> um, and they stuck it out in a difficult climate. Difficult climate, dry farming. However, the winters here are pretty nice. I mean, there are colder places to farm. <laughs> oh, I and I should know of them because I'm in one. Yes, exactly. There's, there's, there's a magic to dry farming and I that I really appreciate that it's really capturing and using what's available to you in terms of the yeah. moisture, whether that's rainwater. I think in your case, there's some fog that yes, also some right. some that contributes to that. But I really appreciate dry farming, but I imagine that it's going to get it's going to become more and more of a gamble. Yeah. Well, As it's we also it's also um, kind of showing up in a good light right now too with the with the water of the west. I mean, we are not. There's people moving in, um, you know, taking water from the creeks, and people are protesting, and neighbors are mad, and um, the dry farmers are doing what they did 80 years ago the same way. So there's something beautifully designed about that that it's still working actually. Good. Yeah, I I'm glad to hear it's still uh -huh, working. It is. Of course, it's a struggle. I mean, don't get me wrong. It is eking, an eking out of an existence um, for a, a paycheck every year. But it's, it is something we can farm out here. It, it's one of the only few places in the world that it can be done. Like you said, we have a coastal fog that waters these plants through, you know, starting about now, May, through early summer, through like for the next two months. And that without that coastal fog there wouldn't be enough water for these plants. The other important factor of dry farming is the ground. So we have adobe clay soil that's tilled in a way, sort of an artisanal way of digging deeply and uh, talk about laying the groundwork, getting, getting the moisture, the rain that falls when it does fall to go as deep as it can and then closing it up before that rain can evaporate. So in some ways you're also guessing when the rain's coming you're, um, guessing when it's going to stop. And, and there's a art form to that too, that I've seen over the years that the family does that is, is successful. And it's a, it's a skill that will be gone if it's not passed on to the next generation. This is not something they're teaching in school. Maybe actually I don't know that as a fact, maybe they are starting to teach dry farming in schools, but this is, you know, I don't think so. A hands-on 
thing that, it, that has gone down in this generational family. So that's how they've learned. Yeah. And you have to, I, I feel like you almost have to grow up understanding all of those different circumstances and mm-hmm. influences of weather and soil. And yeah. Yeah. Sun and what's a dry year and what's a wet year and, and what's a dry decade manifest, you know, is this yeah. a dry year or a dry decade? Um, yeah. All kinds of questions like that, that they've had to ask over the years. So how did you end up in California? Hmm. Good because question. I know that you're not from California to begin with. I think right. you're from Ohio. I am from Ohio. I'm from a small town uh, in the center of Ohio called Granville, Ohio. There's a tiny little college called Denison University in my town that kind of kept it a unique, cultural, exposed, um, interesting place full of professors and interesting people coming in and out of town. If you were my parent, my family was able to tap into that just by having the friends that they did and stuff. And they took us to, you know, all the lectures and, and events that would happen that would kind of expose us in the middle of the Midwest of farm country that was really otherwise pretty homogenous everywhere else around us for the next 500 miles in every direction until you hit the next big city or something. So I, as every teenager does, starts to get a little antsy in their pants and starts to, I, I got had a trip to New York City for a graduation present and that became my goal. I was like, this is amazing. I had seen a Broadway show. I walked around the streets where buildings were taller than you couldn't even see you know, the sky from them. And I thought that was the most exciting thing in the world. So I found a way to do that. I went to a, a school, a Parsons School of Design in New York City for a while, lived that life of fun teenage, you know, even going to, God, I don't even know what they're called anymore, nightclubs. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't know one. one. I wouldn't know one if it hit me upside the head at this yeah. point. <laughs> but like, really, you know, a whole other world exposed to me. I um, did that for a few years, and then had, and then went off to college, and which also gave me some internships in other towns. So I lived in Boston. I lived in Cincinnati, and one of the internships so got me to California. You took a gap year. You took a gap yes. year in New York City. That was yes, your gap exactly. year. Well, I also worked that year. Yes, I did both. I worked yeah. at a, as a, as a I, I like to say I invented the gap year because um, it wasn't really a thing. Uh, it wasn't called that at the time. My dad had kind of seen me be a little uninterested about applying for college. So he kind of just let it, and my mom too, I guess. He kind of just let it, you know, happen naturally. And I was not really uh, that interested in going. So the summer came and I... I guess I, I guess he started. He said, "I'm going to have to charge you rent." <laughs> so uh, I went and got a job, and it turned out to be an amazing job. Actually, kind of with some luck um, and a little nepotism from my mom, who's a writer. She got me a job as an illustrator in her company that wrote children's books, and I was just doing sort of simple illustrations for this pilot program. But it they they loved me, and I loved the job, and it kind of set me on the path of becoming an artist for money. And so I was an illustrator for a year and decided I wanted to do graphic design as a way to make art as a living. Yeah. And so that led you, that's what led you out West. Yes. So after college, I had a job and in Santa Barbara 
um, offered to me after having an internship out there and falling in love. I was like, I remember going on hikes on the weekend in the mountains in Santa Barbara and saying, whoa, people, you can, this doesn't just have to be a vacation. You can, do, you can do this all the time, like live in places like this. <laughs> and so I figured it out. I, I said, well, I want to do that. This is way more interesting and fun. The ocean, Big Sur on the weekends. Just the, I, I, I could get in the car and drive 500 miles to a whole new climate and landscape that I had never seen before in a weekend. Um, so that's what I did. And it was fun. I think there's this sense in the West that the world is at your fingertips, that adventure is at your fingertips. It's mm-hmm. just right around the corner and it's a relatively short drive away. Yeah, it's tangible. You can see the mountain a hundred miles away on your drive towards the mountain. So you, it, there's something that, because you can see it, uh, there's an immediate connection to it that makes you want to get closer. Yeah. And, and coming from Ohio, mm-hmm. I think there's even more intrigue, maybe. Absolutely. Ohio has its own qualities that California does not, and I miss some of them. And it was a great place to grow up, but there was something about when I saw the West that fed my soul in a way that I knew I couldn't ever get up. And that could be the, even just an ocean. I mean, it doesn't have to be a mountain, but just everything's so big in the West. The, the, the water bodies are big. The, the hills are big. The animals are big. And I'm not sure why that speaks to me, uh, but it does. It's impressive. It feels spiritual. It feels... Like, it makes me feel small. I like that feeling of feeling small. I love that feeling of feeling small. I think we share a deep love of the West, mm-hmm. and I think that's how we connected initially. But there is nothing like standing in an ocean of grass or at the foot of a mountain or just even, you know, driving over from Kansas and beginning to see the Rockies in the distance. Yeah. I, it, it does... It does create a perfect smallness, and that's something that you repeated a lot in the document that we made together. And I wondered, like, what is it about feeling small that is such a gift? Well, I think for, to me, it speaks to um, a, a, sort of my neuroticness, right? Like, I can get in my head and make something incredibly big in my head and be quickly struck down by it. Like, wait, that is not a big deal. You know, once you get your perspective back. So I think that that's probably the, the root pleasant feeling of seeing a mountain or a big body of water is that you're small and yeah. you, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter what you're worried about. No. It, yeah. And I think it seems trivial in the smallness, both of, of, of it from just its geographical majesty, but also mm-hmm. from the sense of time that it brings up for me that here is this mountain that has been here for exactly. what feels like time immemorial. Yeah. And that mountain does not care about you. Like yeah. that mountain is not making decisions based on any, anything that you're thinking about. Um, that's a great feeling too, but it does not care. Yeah. I love that. And so, so you pursue, you pursue art and you pursue a career in freelance design. Yeah. And it's great. I uh, started off the first job I had out of college. Luckily, lucky enough had, I should have taken a little more time off that summer, but I went from the classroom right to the, my first job. And it was probably the best job I could have possibly had 
but I hated it. I was a senior designer in charge of my own projects, had some freedom, you know, to like be creative. I had respect from the office, but I could not imagine doing this eight to five with people around in an office, you know, in the constructs of a building that I had to be at back from lunch for an hour. And I was almost having like a existential crisis. Like, what have I done here? I just studied digital art and design and graphic design and photography and art history. And $60,000 later, I hate what I'm doing. I hate my daily existence. So I started to think of other opportunities. And on the way to work every day, I actually got to bike to work. I would see a postal carrier. I, don't know if I told you this story. This is a new story for you. Walking in Santa Barbara with shorts on, nice tan legs by himself, delivering mail from house to house. And I was like, that's the job I want. That looks amazing. <laughs> mm-hmm. And this is like when going postal was becoming a thing. So I'm not even sure if it was an accurate read on the job, but his life looked pretty good. So I went and applied for that, got to the um, final interview and had a moment of like, wait, 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 let's put the brakes on here. Had a big long talk with my parents and we decided, wait, don't throw everything away yet. Go freelance. What would that take to go freelance? To, I mean, we sort of, my dad has this way of doing a must and needs, must needs and wants. Li- I don't know. Wait, like are needs and wants the same things. Anyway, a listing out of everything important and just eliminate as you can and try to solve the problem. So freelance seemed to be, the, to be that way. So I did that. I saved up for a year to buy my first computer, gave the boss like two weeks notice, friendly goodbye. And she gave me some clients to start with. And we're still friends. I actually talked to her yesterday. This is 25 years later. But I've never not been a freelancer since then. And I love it. I'm curious in that moment. So you see you see this guy walking and delivering the mail and he's out in the sunshine. I mean, what is it that flips that switch that you realize I, I cannot do this any longer? I have to get out. It's the it's the I think it's the confidence to know I can have that too. I don't, I don't have to be stuck in misery. I shouldn't be miserable. I don't know how I know that, but somehow I know I don't have to be miserable. So, you know, just kind of like a a confidence to change your situation, I guess. One of the things that, that does help in moments like that to leave your job when you're, you know, paying for an apartment and paying your health insurance and paying your, I mean, that you're, I'm 20, 21 years old paying for my own life is huge safety nets in place. I know that that's a privilege of mine. Uh, Not everyone has that. Even kids uh, right next to me during that time in my life didn't have that. But I always can go to my worst case scenario as that my parents will not let me be homeless. And I'm guessing that that's the bottom line for everyone. And not everyone has that. Not everyone has parents with an extra bedroom or a relationship where you can come home and uh, mooch off them for a few months while you get yourself back together. So I'm lucky that way. I never have done it though. I've never moved back home. I'm the only kid in my family of five that never moved back home. So, but just knowing it's there as an option has helped me cross the bridge to many big decisions. Yeah. And that, I mean, that first, that first step to go freelance, I think is a massive decision. And I also think that there's this component too of, cause I'm curious what you what what it was about the guy delivering the mail about his lifestyle that you wanted for your own? Mm. Was it freedom? 
freedom. I was just, yeah, you know, you're reading my mind. Yeah. <laughs> he had the freedom to, yeah. He had the freedom to make some decisions throughout the day. He didn't have someone watching his every move. When, how long his, well, I'm sure the post office is not considered like this amazing, uh, like make your own choice. Bastion of, of freedom. No, <laughs> but the way he <laughs> walked down the street made it look like that, you know? So yeah, probably a couple jobs. And like he was that, outside. Obviously. He was outside. That's the other big part. Yeah. I mean, that I, that drew me to farming. I, here is a place where yeah. I can be free to set my own schedule. And I whether I want to be or not, it has a lot yes. of outside time built in. And that, I mean, that's yeah. that's been critical to what I want in something. Yeah. So when I met the kid's dad, he was that person. He was the only person in my age group that was happy with what he is doing with his life. All of all the rest of us were like, what have we done? We're stuck indoors without any power or freedom. And he was outside moving rocks and, you know, uh, making his own schedule, working probably twice as hard as anyone I knew, but had the decision-making power and the creative uh, power, I guess, too, to, to shape his own daily existence, which made him, extremely content and still is um, farming is is not an easy job it's a struggle but there's something deeply content about people who work in the dirt and work with animals and the seasons I've seen that I'm always curious about what what that contentment is because I've seen it too and it was a big part of what what drew me in was the idea of having this contentment and I wonder if it's a sense of responsibility or a sense of purpose, mm -hmm. a, a sense of being a part of something bigger. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think in what I've seen, I've studied the farmers and ranchers that I live amongst out here and a huge part of it that not everyone has at other jobs in, in the city or in industries is the, the family heritage part of it, that that's just, be, just, Continuing the family traditions is a big motivator for many of my friends and families out here that are doing farming and ranching, third, fourth generation people, fifth, some, some fifth generations out here. Yeah. And that's a good feeling, I'm guessing, for in those, in those dark moments where you're wishing on a Sunday that you weren't the one missing the party because you had to, you know, fix the, the fence so the cattle won't get out tomorrow night. Um, you're doing it because your family did it for a hundred years. Hmm. I wonder what that says about first generation farmers too, though. Interesting. Yeah. Well, you can answer that better than me. I can see the, the farmers who were, you know, taking trees down and plowing virgin fields in Nebraska doing it for opportunity, right? Yeah. They, there was a different drive there you tell me why you do it in 2020 <laughs> as a, as someone who doesn't have to do it. It is opportunity. And I, th I think in some ways it is the same thing. It's opportunity. It's the opportunity to, I view it as an ability to live life on my own terms, to mm -hmm. be able to have connection. And I think in an, in a world that is 
increasingly disconnected, whether you look at that through the lens of social media or everything's on a computer, there is something connected and tangible and real about this work that I find myself in. And I lose myself at the same time. The, you know, There's an aspect of flow to it. But I, I mm-hmm. do think that there's there's meaning and tangibility and yeah. purpose and there is opportunity. Yeah, I took a little walk right before we did this podcast. And I was telling you, just on my, honestly, 15-minute walk, I saw things that I went to check on the horses to make sure they had water in the creek because they were getting locked out of the barnyard because we're preg checking some cattle. But just walking along, I saw my old horse from my first horse 10 years or 20 years ago. You know, I saw his bones over there in the ravine and it's not disturbing anymore. It's actually comforting. So to have a, to have a job and a lifestyle where you get to see that still, where that's not just swept away and taken out with the trash is it gives meaning to this place, gives meaning to my daily existence, gives meaning to the, the chore that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. You talked about that some with your kids too, that to, to raise kids with meaningful chores, these chores that had consequences and that had weight and value to them as opposed mm-hmm. to the chores of, of cleaning the bathroom, washing the windows. Yeah. That, yeah. And I, yeah. I'm, I'm curious too, both how that wraps into having kids that may, may not be fifth generation farmers. Mm-hmm. Right. I, it's just kind of coming to fruition. My kids are just all becoming young adults. I've got a 20 year old, a 17 year old and a 14 year old. This is a fun age. I just had a really yeah, fun those weekend are good ages. as adults. Yeah, those are good I mean, ages. This is, this is, this is the worth the pay. This is the payoff guys. All of you there sitting at home with toddlers, it comes. But one of the advantages for farm kids especially in our situation is they could look outside and see their parents, what they did for a living. They would see, you know, fields being plowed 20 feet away from the front door. Um, They would get asked to help pretty early on to help move the tractor down the road by, you know, holding the flag out the window or at the cattle branding to be marking down the heifers from the steers, um, putting, you know, shots in or, or vitamins and, you know, safe little chores from when they were, or if anything, they just had to sit there. They had to come. I couldn't leave them at home yet. They were two or three years old. They had to sit on the back of the truck and just watch and not complain. So even there's a little skill in that too. I mean, that I'm, I'm losing track. What was the question? With passing this on to your kids, you know, your kids got this chance to view meaning through the lens of chores. And I think you're really, mm-hmm. and what it, mm-hmm. what it means to maybe be raising the next generation of farmers as we're talking about the lens of why we might farm through both a generational and a first generation farmer sort of, sort of view. Yeah. I, it's, it's been an interesting uh, journey for me. It's not necessarily a lucrative job. Is it going to work again for another 50 years for the net, for my kids? I don't know. So that was never something that I funneled them towards. There was not, in fact, I did the opposite, you know, more of a hands off, like here are some doors that are open to you. You get to choose which doors you go through. I'll, I'll show you which doors there are that I know of. And you might find some that I don't even know of, which I can help you research and see how to get through them. 
So I'm not sure what will happen. The, the kids are already talking like they're going to be here doing something. They might not be dry farming beans. Or maybe there's a way to market those. We've been trying for years. I, I as a graphic designer, repackage the beans and cute little muslin bags with a you know little story about the farm and the family and how the beans are farmed. And we've been able to sell them for five times their value in the right stores. Maybe even more actually yeah. now. That's so how I found you. If the kids over, yeah, yeah. probably. That's how I found you over oh, right. over a decade shop. ago. Yeah, over a decade yeah. ago, I saw your beans in a clothing store of all places. This high end clothing <laughs> store in, in Boulder. Colorado, yeah, it? it was in Boulder, huh. and I was captivated by the little muslin bags and yeah, by the story. And and this has got to be yeah. this has got to be eleven or. 11 years ago. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the, I think the kids are going to have to do something like that too. I'm kind of handing that, I'm trying to, it hasn't happened yet, trying to hand that part of the business over to them, uh, running this, running our online store, you know, thinking of, they have the motivation. I just see it. And mine has died a little, like, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to walk into stores and say, I did it for a while. Do you want to buy our beans? You know, that's so, it's exhausting. So torturous. I hate that. I hate it. But too. I think they've got the energy for that. So if they can't, if they can't, they, you know, there's other ways to make money on ranches too. A lot of the f- ranches around us have turned to weddings and events, mm-hmm. and that's a whole other ball yeah. of, you know, energy that you have to have Agritourism. To, 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 to do that stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's profitable. Yeah. We did a little Airbnb for a while. That was profitable. Yeah. Um, but it was a psychic drain to have people on your property. It's people facing. And I think a lot of us end up on, on farms and ranches to be away from people, to be out of the fray. And so then to turn around and invite them in. Exactly. (laughs) And then they want to be they think everything's just so cute that you want to, they, they think you want to talk about it. Like, tell us more. Can we do this? Can we ride horses? Can we, it's, it's not fun <laughs> to host that day in and day out, at least for my personality. Maybe it's just my personality. We, we share that personality trait. And I, I do think, because I think, and I know, I know from speaking with you that some of what drew you to this lifestyle and to freelancing was a chance to be, out of the fray to choose when to engage with mm-hmm. people. Yes. Right. So that's why the whole agro tourism Airbnb thing hasn't, I haven't uh, completely swallowed that yet, that direction yet, but we'll leave it to the kids. Yeah. Now. Um, they've been it, it, doing all kinds of uh, uh, like getting exposed to things that they're, they go to a boarding school nearby. That's this amazing boarding school that has changed our lives and I'm excited to see what uh, they're going to come out with there, but they've, they've been exposed to a lot of things that I couldn't have done for them. I bet. I'm sure that that's a very different space to, to be in coming from the farm too, to go into boarding school. Yes. Yeah. I'm curious for a minute to rewind on the kids and to go back to when they were smaller, because I think a lot of interesting stories stem from some of the choices that you made around raising them, especially taking them out to adventure during the summers in a camper, just you and the kids. Yes. So that was uh, my, my, one of my favorite times of our life when we discovered that we could travel again, because we had toddlers, you know, where it's actually more work to leave the house than it is to stay home. So once they, once we got the smallest one, 
to a, a stage where she wouldn't swallow rocks anymore, which was basically two years old, probably. <laughs> we, my, my grandmother left me some money when she passed, and I bought a little 1953 Budger trailer. It's a metal canned ham, wood inside, beautiful little vintage trailer. And we took off. We, every little break we had from school, and I would just take the kids alone because there's just there some family you know people had to stick around the ranch to feed animals and uh, mm. plant beans and uh, handle the cattle so that became sort of my thing and every summer we would really make a tour of all the national parks i want to bring into this as we talk about the deep wilderness and about nature's incredible ability to turn on our senses. I want to talk about, I know that in our notes, you and I really connected on this piece around being a highly sensitive person and having this experience of life where you have a heightened awareness that might be described as a hypervigilance or a, a real propensity to having sensitivity. sensitivity. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So it is always cool. To, I've only met maybe two or three in my life. Like really? Like I've got a couple of friends who are in different spots. Yeah. That were you like, connect, like me, you too. Oh my gosh. Me too. Yeah, totally. But basically I have a condition that um, it's called misophonia or highly sensitive person. I've seen it under both titles. And it's basically a, a sensitivity, an ultra high sensitivity to sounds um, and sensitive to touch or, or, or even visuals can come into play. My triggers are mostly sounds like crinkling potato chip bags, too many people talking at once. I blank out and, 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 and eating noises trapped in a car, even visual triggers. But like, if a if a, my friends are sitting at a circle in the beach, but one person's off the curve, I try to fix the curve. Like I, they joke about it, but if they get up, I will go and fix their chair and make it part of the curve so we can all talk and, and see each other's faces. Um, it's not debilitating, but it makes us a little crazy. I have found ways by living on a farm, you know, having a camper that I can pull up to a friend's house and not have to be on top of them. Um, all kinds of little ways to get through life, but these sounds trigger us in a way that almost make us angry. Like it's like you want to fight or flight. You either have to leave the room or shut the sound down. Um, it's not something all of us can understand, irritating noises and stuff, but for people like us, they've actually done the brain scans. Our brains fire off in a different way. And I know that you have it like with touch. Yeah. Um, I'm sensitive to some fabrics. I'm very, you know? fabrics are a really big deal for me. And, and that's, that, that's interesting that you also share yeah, that. The one area I'm so glad I don't have it in. The one area I don't have it in is taste. So thank gosh, there's like one area where I can like, I'll eat anything you put in. I don't me. have it there either, <laughs> but it, it can come up. I mean, everything from being very sensitive to other people's emotions and their energy, you know, all of these sensations that we've that covered. Too. And I, I really have it with uh, people's emotions and energy. And that, that gets mixed up too in being the child of alcoholics. But, but mm -hmm. sensations, noises, visual stimulation. And there's a great book by um, Dr. Elaine Aaron called the highly sensitive person. And we can link to this in show notes, but she talks about this affecting between 15 and 20% of the population. And, you know, my experience 
which is a, a lot actually. And when I discovered this about myself, I don't know, it was probably like four years ago, all these things clicked into place because I really do struggle with my, just like you said, with my nervous system wanting to jump into that parasympathetic fight or flight response at these overwhelms, whether it's, you know, uh, visual or whether it's noises or for me, a lot of it can be touch. And, and there is just this, this really sensitive Mm -hmm. nervous system. And it led me out of the city. I think that a big part of why I really wanted to live in the country, even as a little kid, was to get away from all of the noises and all of the stimuli that were overstimulating me. And I think the the thing we noticed, or I noticed, and you uh, pointed out, it, is these these sounds and triggers and visuals are usually human made. Like it usually has to do with humans. We go off into the, into the woods in nature. And I have never been in a, in a position of being triggered in nature. I, I, I find that remarkable because that's not necessarily a normal day of my life to be untriggered, but I think that's why I like the woods. Yeah. I feel the same way when I am out in nature, everything quiets for me in terms of stimulation. I feel, I mean, there is a pleasant sense of awareness and, and that sort of arousal, but there isn't this overwhelm of stimulation. And it's just like somebody is taking a dial and just turning it way down. You know, that, that, that dial is always cranked up for me and nature's the only thing that, that settles it. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm going to have to think about that more. Yeah, I'm curious to see what you come up with and where it lands. How did that? I'm guessing my body found yeah. it first. Yeah, and that. And now, now my brain's catching up. Like, oh, that's why I like it. Yeah, that yeah. deep knowledge that you put your body. I mean, and I think this is a really big piece that when we listen to our bodies, they have a lot of wisdom that we are often missing when we're not connecting in because it is a bottom up, right? We have, we have top down where, you know, our brain can control a lot of our physiology, but there's also bottom up where when we can find physiological relaxation, when we can find that sense of uh, parasympathetic response in our nervous system, then it affects our minds. And so it's a bi-directional highway and I, I agree. I think that that time in nature that my body recognized it long before my brain did. I, it took me till I was probably about 35 to even know about highly sensitive persons and all that. So I was a crying at dinner every night as a child. I cried from age nine to oh, probably yeah. 17. Yeah. I think I cried every day. Oh yeah. And I think <laughs> and that, was I, that I was the same know? way. I, and still, and still am a, a crier. I, I consider myself a crier. And I think there's a societal lens through which yeah. we view sensitivities that can make it really hard to walk around as a sensitive person, that they are not valued and, and they do have a value. And to give credit to the people that walk around us, you know, bless them because Anyone that lives with us on a full-time basis oh, gets yeah. to know what not to do pretty quickly. Do not scrape your teeth on a fork. Do not talk with your mouth open, full of food. Turn that music down or at least turn, you know, like stop talking at the same time. Don't interrupt your sister. Like it's, 
it is hard to have kids because they don't follow half the rules of a highly this sensitive This is something that actually terrifies needs. me about having children. <laughs> but it's also anyway. Yeah, totally. But it's also a little bit torturous. I mean, like yeah. we're a pain in yeah. the butt to live with. I, yeah, I, I have a lot of all the time. particularities. I'm a pain in the butt to live with. At least I am. I don't know about you. My husband, my husband is amazing at navigating it. And I think, you know, one (laughs) thing that we had talked about before was... Yeah, I know. I think that this really served a purpose. I think a lot about modern life and how overstimulating it is and that, that could we go back in time maybe there wouldn't be that stimulation because there was that connection with nature and there's not emails and cars and noises. Yeah. And you said something that I loved, which was, but then you're in a cave with all of these people, (laughs) which is, yeah. So horrible, but I really think that there (laughs) would have been a space where when we think about this as something that is that is manifesting in 15 to 20% of the population, sensitivities have a lot of value that we are the sentries and the people that are really sensitive yeah. to maybe a bear coming across, you know, yeah. our tribe's camp that, right? yeah, yeah, that you can really Meadows, feel shifts right, exactly. in your environment in a different way and that there is so much value in that. Now I think there is some that I, I call myself a canary in the coal mine, that, that sometimes I can be a little bit of a, a canary in today's world. Mm-hmm. Well, it's also, it feeds my artistic side. I am nuanced in a way that um, helps me understand how to set up a, a visual something that reflects that i i love doing it so i've gotten uh good at that i think you've done it too with especially with the things i've seen like your podcast you you can put a thought together in a way that most of us can't well Um, the way you construct it is beautiful that's a big and that's because of your sensitivities this is I really enjoy working with people yeah. in this capacity. And it's interesting as an introvert that I really enjoy getting to explore people in this way. And I see it too yeah. in your, in your art, that there is such a sense of everything. Yeah. Yeah. I like vibes. I, I, I can, I can set the vibe for a, a dinner party. Um, yeah. I'm not a great yeah, cook, I love, but I can I set love the that, vibe where you're, everyone's comfortable. You're great at setting vibes. That's I, what a gift uh, that has. It's that it has a really important place in this world. <laughs> yeah, where would that have been in the you cave? You would have been though? making I the cave art. Like, you know, you're at La Salle painting the caves, really adding a certain je ne sais quoi to <laughs> to, to the cave. Totally, or s- maybe. S- Setting up the religious ceremony, sacrificing yeah. the goat, you know, like the candles, the because that's really important to to have <laughs> that really sing when you're sacrificing the goat. I think I think too, you would have been the one that found the I don't know, it'd be like a a one person apartment cave for when you need some downtime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, right. What would they call it? The cave yeah. woman cave. The cave woman cave. <laughs> they call it man cave. Yeah. The the place where you can go to get away from all of the other people in the cave. <laughs> I think you're right. We probably developed our own skill set to contribute, but to be able to tolerate the the group setting. Yeah. 
the people that went off on tracked game on their yes. own. Yes, I want to be that person. Yeah, that sounds like I a fun know. Club. I know. <laughs> I wasn't going to ask this now, but you you track megafauna now, so you have yes. this initial. I want to let's talk about megafauna. Okay, let's do um, it. Let's do it. You have this initial experience with a grizzly, and uh-huh. I think it something clicks because yep. this is now something that you seek out this experience to cohabitate and to share space with predators, with grizzlies, yeah, with wolves. It, it sounds morbid, but it's not. But to because the reason I do it is because it's just cool to be on the planet with something that can eat you. I don't know why that's empowering. It's not morbid. It's exhilarating. Um, there's uh, a, I, I, I continued after that grizzly encounter to come back to Yellowstone and Glacier and Montana and Idaho and Washington State even now. And I, I kind of stopped going to the Arizona, uh, Utah and New Mexico parks because the megafauna were in the others. And just, it, it gives you something, you're constantly vigilant, whether you're driving or walking or hiking or camping or sleeping, that there are animals out there. It's like a walking mountain. It doesn't give a crap about you. It's not going to change what it wants to do. He's in charge. She's in charge of what, how this situation is going to go down. And mm-hmm. I find it fascinating to, to read about them To I even met uh, a couple years ago, one of the park rangers that was in the book, uh, Night of the Grizzlies, which is if you want to ever camp again, don't read it uh, because <laughs> it will change how you feel sleeping in the woods. Yeah. Night of the Grizzlies. It's a, it's a classic book about the grizzly attacks. There was three or four grizzly attacks in one night in Glacier National Park back in 1970 or 60s or something like that. I ended up hiking to the place where it happened. I mean, it's a, it sounds kind of like an ambulance chaser type thing to do, but I, there's something about that that's interesting to me to see how the story went down so I can have it not happen to me or understand a little bit more of the bear mentality and how that all works. So you said something really interesting at the beginning of talking about this, that they're in control of the situation, the grizzly, the wolf, it, it, yeah. what they want is what's going to go down. And as people that are sensitive and that do really like to control our environments, mm, what is it about giving yeah. up control to nature? I mean, to something, to something literally bigger than you. Okay, I I think you might just be my new therapist. This is amazing that you just be, connected those dots for me. <laughs> <laughs> I they're there for me too, though. I mean, those dots. I we share that. I've been reading mountaineering disaster stories since I was a little kid. I love it. Yeah, um, and and love nature stories. Yes, yeah. I actually it makes me love nature more. Why is that more, the case? I, Absolutely. There's a, there's a great podcast that my friend's, um, my friend's boyfriend, who's a bear biologist and works in Yellowstone, Mm. uh, has called tooth and claw where it's just stories of megafauna and, and human interactions with them. That reminds me of the next story that really shook my uh, boat, uh, about grizzlies. I was with my daughter for her when my kids turn 10, I take them on trips because it's too hard to take five people on a trip. So we, I would take a child on a trip and we would go somewhere cool. Claire and I went to Glacier National Park and we were camping 
and driving back to our campground, entered a bear jam. And I could kind of, by now I'm getting a little savvy. So I kind of see the spot where the bear's heading. I'm not trying to interfere with this situation at all because I, I actually truly respect the bear management teams and, and, and I want to keep bears around. But I did see that if I drove my car up to the upper parking lot there, that we might have a chance of seeing this grizzly go right by us. So we got up there and there's a bear management ranger up there with a rubber bullet gun. And I got to watch him from my car window manage this bear, like shooting rubber bullets so that he would kind of turn away from the people and go up into the woods. And it was exciting. And that became my new mission to become a bear management ranger at at the National Park. Is that still <laughs> well, part of the mission? After looking into it and the things that you would have to do to get there, that is not. I mean, it's still, there is a chance if that fell in my lap, I would do it. Instead, I've decided rather than try to go through all the, the hoops and jumps to get to those positions to make money, I, I love my work. I want to keep doing graphic design. Instead, I went and bought a, a piece of land in the Grizzly Corridor. And I'm going to just uh, set up shop there and enjoy my own little piece of my own little land that that it's possible grizzlies could walk through. And this is in Montana, right outside of Glacier National Park. Yeah. It's across the street from Glacier National Park. There's nothing on it right now. Um, And it's in between two large grizzly corridors. The the Glacier National Park corridor is about 70 miles separate from the Yellowstone. Right now, there's only a 70 mile radius where there's no grizzlies to the Yellowstone corridor. So I am in between these two corridors that hopefully will be connected shortly, I would imagine, the way things are going now. And it's not just grizzlies, it's wolves, it's moose, it's uh, even wolverines, lynx, uh, elk, and all kinds of uh, animals that are unique to the West of America. It's it's amazing that we still have these guys around. And you, you don't seek them, you, you track them to some degree, you enjoy yeah. tracking them and where they've been. I had a friend this winter who saw some uh, wolf tracks. And so we went out after work and tried to follow him with not, not to, not to harm them, but just to see, it was just exciting to follow the wolf tracks and to see spots of, of wolf urine in the snow. So snow is a great time to track animals and we never saw him, never saw him. By the time we got back up there, the prints were almost melted away and, we could track them for a little bit, but it was an exciting adventure. And that is all I needed just to know that I was in the same woods as something like a pack of wolves. I think it's, it's interesting. I think world worlds with apex predators are it's, we're better for having them in the world and our, we have become this apex predator of everything as the human species. Mm, And I think that there's this feeling as we sit in our cushy houses and, you know, we eat food out of our refrigerator that nothing can touch us. Mm -hmm. And from my perspective, there's something really humbling about being in the presence of something that could eat you. And there's something that really, really forces to realize, you know, to come back again to that space of smallness Mm -hmm. to lose a little bit of control and Mm -hmm. to be connected with something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All three of those things. Um, I wish I had said that just now. (laughs) (laughs) No, I love what you said. I love what you said. And I love, I love that this is something that you seek out. And so, and we kind of we're coming to a close of 
doing these summers with your kids. Yes. So and now, yeah, I, that started to happen. They started to get summer jobs. They started to do little, you know, things off with their own friends and lives. I have a daughter moving to Australia, like they're leaving home. But yeah, so I go on these adventures alone now. The kids can't come with obligations that they have. And it's a whole nother ball of wax. Yeah. Now you're out in the wilderness, sometimes alone, or are you always Mm -hmm. with a group, a mountaineering group? I am usually with a a group on something new, but I have started to venture a little bit on some, uh, which is a big deal for me, on some paths that are well-traveled. I, I, it, there's, that's another feeling to go alone on something. But I, I also have a pretty low tolerance for risk. Um, I, as, as cavalier and brave as I look, I'm actually, I have backup plan and backup plan and backup plan in my, you know, that I've already, that I've already marked out so that if the worst case scenario happened, I have, I'm fairly covered. So don't be mistaken. I'm not super uh, free as a bird when it comes to to risk. I just like managing my own. I don't want to have it managed for me. Mm, gosh, I couldn't agree with anything more. I think that's an aspect of freedom. I mm-hmm. I want to manage. I want to manage my own risk. But it brings me back to one of the values that you had put down, which was bravery. Mm-hmm. That that this is something that you really value, and at the same time experience fear and a deep desire to mitigate risk, to have backup plans, B, C, D. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Freedom is, um, you know, to be able to make your own decisions and your own level of risk taking. There's, uh, you've heard of the type one, type two, type three levels of fun. Um, No. Okay. There's, I'll, I'll, I'll mess it up by describing it, but type one fun is just fun. Like, Everyone enjoys it. Disneyland, although that's my nightmare. But yeah, I was about to say. <laughs> in general, that's a, a well-established. You know, like it's you go there to have fun. Type two fun is really where the rewards come back to you when when you've struggled to to do something that then there it, it, it almost isn't fun while you're doing it. I mean, climbing mountains is not really fun. Like it's you're it's kind of gru- grueling work. And, but the after effects are what you are after. You're, you're coming back down the summit. You're feeling accomplished. You're feeling strong. You're feeling brave. And that's why people come back to type two fun. Type three fun is usually when stuff goes bad. Like you're, you started off on a, on a skiing adventure and there's an avalanche that, you know, nearly takes the whole crew out. And that's just too much risk. The perfect amount of risk is type two fun where you're you're living in an unmanaged risk situation and and manage and managing it well. There's an aspect of suffering, I think, in type two fun that there you have to overcome something hard, and mm-hmm. this has been really important to me in my life. I really like overcoming little challenges, mm-hmm. and I'm curious for you what keeps you coming back to something that uh, you just said it isn't all that fun in the, in the initial undertaking of it. It's, it's fun on the way down when you have the endorphins, when you have the hindsight. Yeah. I don't know the answer to this, but I am trying to find it. I ask people, I'm hiking with people who have mountaineered for, they're 70 years old, 75 years old. And I'm asking, and nobody really has a great answer. Nobody has given me a little, soundbite or sentence 
full of nuggets that gives one answer for everyone. But that makes me think of the the quote. Can I read this quote? Please read the quote. By, by Paul Petzolt, the founder of Knowles. He wrote, all my life, people have asked the question directly or indirectly, why in the hell do you climb mountains? I can't explain this to the other people. I love the physical physical exertion. I love the wind. I love the storms. I love the fresh air. I love the companionship in the outdoors. I love the reality. I love the change. I love the rejuvenating spirit. I love to feel oneness with nature. I'm hungry. I enjoy eating. I get thirsty. I enjoy the clear water. I enjoy being warm at night when it's cold outside. All these things are extremely enjoyable because gosh, you're really feeling them. You're living them. Your senses are really feeling it. I can't explain it. So that's the answer. It's different for everyone, but it probably has to do something with those kind of qualities. You talked about in our in our research, you talked about it it really heightens your senses. Everything is on alert and you're you're maybe even counting the ways that you could die is something that you mentioned. Yeah. And as somebody who's a highly sensitive person, having all of those senses turned on I was really interested in the difference between what it means to have those turned on in the context of daily life and the noises and the the visual things that that sort of get panic and anxiety stirring and the difference of having those all turned on as you climb a mountain. Yeah, um I lost you on some of those on some of that from the sound, but I think I can answer in that when you're, it reminds me of the ocean, actually, because that's one of the first places I experienced that feeling in the moment. I would see surfers. We, I live at the, on, a, on a road at, where at the end of it is a, a famous surf spot. So as we're feeding cattle and fixing fences and taking care of the farm and ranch, we see surfers going by at all hours. You know, And I know there's waves by the, the amount of surfers that are going by. And I find I, I I was from Ohio. This this isn't a, this is not a sport we have there. I was <laughs> fascinated by this. Like what? Who has on a Thursday at two o'clock time to drive out to the ocean? Who who is this? Why are they doing this? They're taking time off work. They're passionate about it. So I found these found this to be exciting to figure out. And the answer is I think when you're riding a wave because I've now tried it and I have my own. I was I going to ask stand up paddleboard really that's more my style to be on the outskirts and be watching i don't like to be in the lineup those things are gnarly i mean especially in, in some of these h- higher profile places but the you ha- when you're in a mount in the mountains with grizzlies that you have to be aware of or mountain cliffs or avalanche risk or even rockfall you're focused on one thing uh, you're you're focused on what you are doing and that is a nice feeling the distractions are gone. You're, you've got a mission. You've got a goal. You've got your, your, your senses are on full fire, but it's in one direction. It's not spread like a fan, like it is in normal life, especially with children in the house and jobs and uh, carpooling and commuting and all the things that we deal with. Farming. Farming. Exactly. <laughs> right. So I think that's an enjoyable to be, it's like, it's like a, a form of creative bliss. If you've experienced mm. creative bliss, which I've also done in my in the art world of being lost in creative bliss, you're focused, you lose track of time, you're, you, you, three hours go by and you don't even know that it, that it went by. 
It's a flow state. I mean, yeah, that's really, exactly. it, it really is a flow state. And I think I've experienced this in creativity and I don't know that I've ever experienced it in this, in this survival situation. Mm. And I'm so curious. Ooh, that's not true. I have once there was a, there was a kayaking trip where I experienced mm-hmm. this. Mm. I'm curious what that difference is, a flow state in this survival and physically daunting task Mm -hmm. and a flow state in this, the bliss of creation and losing yourself in your own reality. Really? One is a very Mm -hmm. real reality and the other is the reality that, that we're creating. Yeah, exactly. It's similar, but different. I think just how you described it when you're, you know, in the woods, you're using your body, you're feeling more senses being used, you've got your, you know, everything on high alert. But when you're in the studio, working on a project, a creative writing or or art piece, that is a controlled environment. So that's not you're not using all your senses, you're in your you're in your head, losing yourself, I think is the Mm -hmm. difference. Yeah, you're not even really using your senses at all. I think oftentimes they just kind of melt away. Yeah, right. So it's a it's a different kind of experience, but similar in satisfaction. That's really interesting. You, throughout this journey, have talked to mountaineers, to surfers, and Mm -hmm. really tried to get to the bottom of what makes other people tick. And I was really struck by Farmers and ranchers, too. like Farmers and ranchers, uh, religious people, uh, just a whole whole variety of people to understand what makes different types of people tick? And mm-hmm. I loved this. I loved this about you because I think that it's so interesting to explore what makes other people tick. And I'm wondering what what you gain in the pursuit of that knowledge. Hmm. It's just different for different people, I guess. Mountain climbers and surfers, they talk the same. They're a thousand miles apart. And, and some of the mountain climbers I climb with in Glacier are, have never even been to the ocean, but they talk like surfers. Why is that? They talk slow, deliberate, confident. It's okay. Like it's, there's sort of a, a parody about it. I could do in my head about how there's a similar sense of it doesn't matter. Everything's going to be okay that both mountain climbers and surfers have. Because I think they're focused on bigger and better things than what's most of us are kind of chewing away with Mm. in our heads all day long. Mm. You think they're focused on the, the next big climb, the next big wave. Yeah. Or that that is, that's the most important thing to make decisions around, not the details of whether the plumber's late or if your (laughs) kid hasn't done their homework. They're just more chill. There's a chillness about them. It's similar. Do you think it's farmers and ranchers? Oops. Sorry. Oh, I'm just curious. Do you think it's purpose? Ah, yeah, but not many people get paid for mountain climbing or surfing. So it's not a, it's not a career choice in the way that it mm-hmm. is like farming and ranching. I think farmers and ranchers are doing it for purpose and other things. But for them, they need that paycheck. They need this to yeah. be something that shows up in a return at the end of the year. Not sure about that. Hmm. It makes me wonder about the the different lenses through which we can view or how we experience purpose as human beings, that there is so much purpose in, in farming and ranching and seeking that connection, I think for me anyway, but maybe there is 
in seeking the next big wave, big peak. Yeah, right. I think that I think it kind of probably translates to the same thing, just for a different outcome. Not yeah, not for the same. And maybe a different purpose. personality type. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to come back to Mount Rainier. Yeah, which I think you saw in in the early days of taking your kids to national parks. But I want to come back to your experience with mountain climbing. Uh, yeah, I've been training for these Cascade volcanoes for the last couple of years. I summited Mount St. Helens a couple summers ago and found it thrilling to stand on the edge of a volcano and look into it. I knew nothing at the time. I barely knew how to put crampons on my boots. And luckily it all worked out. It's it's a maybe a 8,000 foot mountain. So that one's not super, it was, it's kind of a perfect beginner mountain. I went up with somebody that knew what they were doing. So that was, that was my safety feature on that one. Then, then a couple of days later, uh, a group of us went up Mount Adams, which is a, I think at 11,400 foot mountain, which so then it became a little bit more of a accomplishment. That's probably the highest I had been at that point on a mountain. And that was getting pretty like at the top, it was, the wind was ripping, hoods were on, uh, couldn't hear you, the people next to you. And it was still a, a safe situation, but uh, that one it started to feel a little bit more wild. And so then up came Shasta and Mount, and Mount Hood. But those ones keep eluding me. There, there's not enough snow on Shasta for two years in a row that now. Um, and Mount Hood, I had a three-day window to climb it last summer, and it was shrouded in, in a storm for two weeks. So some, sometimes you don't summit. That's okay, too. There, there's... I live close enough to these places to be and have enough freedom to kind of be spontaneous. So I decided this spring I was getting shafted by Shasta again. I decided, you know what, (laughs) I'm just going to go for the big one, going to Mount, going up Mount Rainier. So that's what I've been training for. And I, on July 19th, I plan to spend about three days going up and back down on Mount Rainier. And I have gone halfway up Mount Rainier. I've, I've, I by myself climbed up to, Camp Muir, M-U-I-R, and got to see basically the, the jumping off point to summiting the mountains and the mountain, the rest of the mountain. Uh, so that's exciting. I think I think I have a pretty good shot at this. I'm, I'm doing a pretty grueling training schedule of squats and stretching and all kinds of uh, weightlifting and running and hiking. And I'm carrying a water bottle like the kind that you have in your kitchen to get water from like a a, oh yeah those huge ones a barrel sized in my backpack up up my our local 3,000 foot uh, peak over here to get my my body ready for this um so it's kind of fun It's, it's I I feel like this is something that needed to happen I needed to finish the little goal the little uh goal I had of seeing mountaineers coming down Mount Rainier 10 years ago, I want to be one of them for a day. And in July, you will be one of them. We'll see. Yeah. There's a, I think it's a 50% chance of, of not summiting. And it would be because of weather, altitude yeah. sickness, or other injuries. But um, we will be on a, I'll be on a rope team with crampons and ice axes and helmets and all the gear we need to be safe. How do you train mentally for something like this? Hmm. Research the hell out of it read every book, 
listen to every podcast, listen to gruesome stories, listen to happy stories, talk to people who have done it. Um, I, that's how I do stuff. I just research the hell out of it until you feel like you know enough of what you're getting into. Mm, I like that. I'm a I'm a researcher at heart. I love I love nothing mm-hmm. more than to spend time researching, and so that that really speaks to me as a as yeah. a method. Something that struck me as you and I went through this process of getting to know one another prior to the podcast was that there's a sense of authorship to your story that you, that you built in or you recognized these waypoints where maybe you weren't happy and you, you changed paths to seek happiness, but also where you really looked at, I want to be doing that. And then you built the foundation to get there. And it just, it really struck me. And I was curious if there was a conscious process that, that was a part of that. I think it's just an urge to do something. It, it, it comes up for me. Uh, I, I can feel the difference in just like a small goal and I can, or something that you're yearning for and then something that really needs to happen quitting my first job, my first stable job as a graphic designer and going out on my own as a freelancer. I just felt it. It just had to happen. You know, that was something that I could solve and I did. And there, I don't, I, it's sort of an inner, you start to see the steps on how to solve it. And you can, you can actually see the end in sight. It's like a mountain here. You can actually see the top of the mountain but to get there, you got to go here and got to go over there and through that valley and up that glacier and off to this section. And here's what you need for each of those areas. And I, it just feels possible. I was raised by parents that that taught me anything was possible. I had a mom that believed in me, thought I was the bee's knees. And I had a dad that showed me how to do everything. And showed me, my dad, when he when the washing machine was broken, he would call his girls down to the basement to show us how the the spinny part worked so that we could see this is tangible. You can fix these, some of these things by yourself. I never had a handyman in my entire house growing up. I never had anyone come fix anything. My dad was a mechanical engineer who figured it out. And if he didn't, he made the part for it. I mean, this is, this is a great skill to have seen in a world that I like to, where it's, I where you, it's a good place to be a do it yourselfer. So I think too, in that do it yourself is one of the other themes that I saw throughout your story is this really deep connection to things that are tangible and just to, to make art with a letterpress, to mm-hmm. climb mountains, to do farm work with your hands and to, to move throughout this life in a way that you are almost seeking these tangible, these tangible things. And just, it struck me. Mm-hmm. I think the thing fueling it all is curiosity. I am just interested to know what it feels like to ride a wave. I don't need to be the expert. I don't even want to be the expert. It starts to get too boring at that point when you try to, I, I, I've never been the one to take it all, something all the way to the end and be the best at it. It's not even the goal. I want to taste test it. I want to see why those guys are leaving work at two o'clock to go surf. I want to know why somebody would go up into the hills with a 50 pound pack and come down looking miserable. Why? There must be a reason. I want to know why they wanted to do that. And I'm starting to discover it. I have the time and the freedom and some of the skills 
and, and the courage to do it, I guess. So I do plan to summit Mount Rainier and I just really want to sit on the couch for a year and do nothing after that. <laughs> yeah. And I, I don't believe you. I, I really don't believe you when you say that. I'll, I mean, I'll believe no. it when I see it uh, afterwards, right, we'll if you sit on the couch for a year. And so, cause you're, cause are you going to sit on a couch while you build your cabin in Montana? Because isn't that <laughs> exactly. next up on the docket? That is. And I wish I had the skills to do that. I keep trying to get my dad to come out and help me build it. But he's just, he's 80 years old. He doesn't want to risk, you know, hurting his back at this point. He could do it. He could teach me. But uh, I don't think that's going to happen this time. He's been helping me build plans and come up with the the structure that needs to be safe and so- solid out there in, in, a, in a climate that gets 200 inches of snow per year. So I've got to have a solid wow. situation there. And so are you going to build some of that yourself? Uh, I have, I, it's, I'm still looking at cabin builders and I hate it when people try to work with me on a graphic design project. So I'm trying to tiptoe around that, but I am kind of letting them know like, Hey, if you need someone to, you know, sit there and do hand hewn logs all day long, I'm happy to do that. You know, so we'll see what I can eke out. I actually am going to definitely do what I did with the kids and their lessons. I'm going to sit there and spy and take notes on how he did it so I can learn how he did it. I am paying him. So at least I can sit there quietly and watch perhaps. Hmm. What do you think? What do you think drives this curiosity and this desire to hmm. learn in you? I'm going to put that back on you. You tell me, please. You're the therapist. <laughs> hmm. Curiosity is one of my biggest values. So when we talk about value systems, curiosity is one of mine and I have a a burning curiosity and I share your burning curiosity for people. That's what led me to this podcast. Yeah. And I think it is a lot of it is to better know myself and to, Mm. you said it to taste test that really struck me to be Mm -hmm. a taste test taste tester that I mm-hmm. I want to have that experience and I want to know more about what makes things the inner workings the inner imaginations of things that really yeah that reminds me of the know. other quote that reminds me of the other quote though this is the answer can I read this quote please do okay so it's a quote by Lewis Edrick from her writings in ravenous butterflies Life will break you. Nobody can protect you from that, and living alone won't either. For solitude will also break you with its yearning. You have to love. You have to feel. It is the reason you are here on earth. You are here to risk your heart. You are here to be swallowed up. And when it happens that you are broken or betrayed or left or hurt or death brushes near, let yourself sit by an apple tree and listen to the apples falling all around you in heaps, wasting their sweetness. Tell yourself you've tasted as many as you could. I love that. When you sent me that quote, it made me cry. I just yeah. want that. I want to tell myself I tasted as many as I could. Yeah. And I, I, I think mean, that's I think. what's, I think that's what it is for me. I want to do it all. I want to try it all. And in a reasonable way, I, you can, you, I can do that. I'm continuing to do that. I still have so many questions for you and I know we're coming to a close and it reminds me of the the Home Depot that life is one big unfinished job and I think that yep. this is one big unfinished podcast. I think there's so much more that I want to dig into. Yeah. Um you said that you you saw that at a in a Home Depot ad. 
<laughs> yeah, that was my like, I, I've always been kind of on the search for meaning of life. And uh, I think I was sitting at home with three toddlers uh, wondering, what is this all about? Why are we doing any of this in sort of a moment of, of you know, gr- like feeling overwhelmed? And that ad came on. And I was like, at the end, it said, life is one big unfinished job. And I was like, oh my gosh, I don't have to finish any of this. Like this is, it'll never end. Like it's just going to be one after the other. It was like an intervention moment in my life. Like, so I'm glad I was reminded of that quote recently because starting a cabin build, I need to have that attitude. (laughs) Oh yeah. Josh and I really take that tact with farming because it is never your to-do list. Your job is never finished. Yeah. It it just self-perpetuates. And if you can swallow that, it'll be a much more enjoyable existence. We literally came to that about a month ago. Josh was like, we're just going to, instead of the to-do list, we're just going to think of it as what, what needs to get done today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I asked this with every guest and I feel like we've done a lot of laying the groundwork within the context of this podcast, but what does it mean for you to lay the groundwork? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Cause I actually wrote out the groundwork for my raising my children about 15 years ago. And I think this might kind of continue as a thread through my own life. So it might be interesting. I'll, I'll read it to you. It's kind of probably plagiarized from all kinds of self, you know, help books and family child rearing books. And, uh, you know, so it's, I can't complain, com- completely claim it, but here, here it goes. The Pate family child rearing manifesto. Number one, live in a field your worries will have more space and your field can be used for exploring, growing stuff and keeping animals. Unplug and let them go analog. Number two, let them go barefoot. Matching socks is a waste of time and covered feet make for sissy children. Let them climb it, taste it and jump off of it. Number three, inspire them. Stop asking your children what they want to be when they grow up. Start asking them who they want to be. The first speaks to occupation, The second speaks to character. Number four, ignore them. Leave room in their life for simply mucking about. Give them a ball of string and a shovel and push them outside and shut the door. Number five, relax. Read them poetry and fantastic stories without morals. Let them have popcorn and a vitamin for dinner. Let them go to bed with dirty feet and without brushing their teeth once in a while. Number six, love them. Let them know they are the joy and wonder in your lives that you and God love them to no end. And there is nothing they can ever do to change that in any way ever. And I think I'm living out the lessons that I've taught my children, trying to figure out who am I now in middle age and how do I fit in here? So I think in some ways that was written more for myself 15 years ago than for kids, but it seems to be working. They're turning out pretty cool. (laughs) I found when you sent me this, I found Mm -hmm. so much of I found so much advice for an adult in it. For me, I found so much advice for me to let my worries be in a field where they have more space to, I never wear matching socks. So, so that, that rule was written for me and to start (laughs) asking myself who I want to be. I just think there's, there's Mm -hmm. so much here. Constantly every decade. Yeah. Every half decade, every decade you should be asking yourself. Yeah. Maybe every year. And and I think that so <laughs> speaks to your ability throughout this story to have checkpoints for yourself that you were asking yourself throughout mm-hmm. these these adventures, who do I want to be? 
Yeah, that actually makes me think of the other um, checkpoint in my life when after 10 summers and 48 junior ranger badges later, badges later for the kids, um, I'm now going back and exploring the backcountry areas of these national parks out west. And it's absolutely fantastic to get off the blacktop and see the things that maybe 2% of visitors get to see in these parks. Um, and with two kids in boarding school and one off to Australia, I have the freedom to work from the road as I only really need internet a couple of times a week during a project, but wanting to live off the road, on the road in a 14 foot travel trailer isn't that conducive to a great marriage. So the kids, dad and I decided to split up as we found we were wanting to live separate lives. Home base is still living next door to each other on the ranch so the kids can come and go and have easy access to us. We are friends, he checks my oil before a trip, I send over a meal during harvest. It, it wasn't working, but now it is. And so my farm wife chapter's ending. And I'm, I think the lesson there is knowing when to quit something is almost as important. Yeah. I, I know that that's something I've experienced in my life. When you, when you let go of a dream or when you decide to take a different path and it's important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that. I have this other question. I feel like throughout this podcast, we've caught glimpses of your graphic design business, but I want to come back to it because this is this is the why between you and I being connected. I saw your beautiful work on a muslin bag of beans in a fancy clothing store in Boulder a decade ago, and I fell in love. And I feel like so much of what you do feels tangible and you bring that sense of the tangible into your work bridging bridging seemingly your love of work and farming and adventure and the west into this very tangible artwork through screen printing and letter pressing and all of the things and I want to hear more about that yeah it's taken I mean I ever since I went freelance in the beginning I was kind of taking any job that came my way, paying bills, you know, it's, it's kind of just the nature of the beast when you're a young 20 something trying to pay rent in Santa Barbara County, California. But as I got a little more established, I was able to start to kind of get a little cocky in a way and, and tell clients like, Hey, I might not be the right match for you. Like I don't do high end video graphics that look sleek and, like they're part of Star Wars um, kind of imagery. So you might not want me for that. Like I'm, I'm mostly getting a pen and paper out and drawing your logo and then adding some sort of farm animal to it. And I don't know, it looks like it's vintage. It, it's, I like, it looks like it's weathered. Um, so I have a style now that's really come into play in the last decade. And I clients, clients that like that style come to me, which tend to be agriculture and artists and small business, mom and pop shops. So I am, I have just nailed it. I love my, what I do to make money. I've, I've just, I, it's, I get into the creative bliss mode. I get rewarded with accolades from people that are, I've seldom have not worked out a, on a project that the client's not happy because we'll just work until it's, uh, until, until we both like it. Like it's, uh, it's never been a problem. So, and I get to pick my own hours. I can even do it from the road. I know the campgrounds in the West that have good internet. Watchman Campground in Zion National Park. You can almost watch a movie there. (laughs) Not that I'm doing that, but it's, but being able to send files, you know, to update to the printer so that the winery can uh, get their labels out 
that were whatever you know needed to be done. I can do that. I, I found the way. The world's kind of a fun place for that now. So yeah. that's the difference is I get to live on a farm, but in a modern way. It's it's a cool way to live. And you can you can bring creativity and the sense of the tangible and freedom all together in in one space and work your work. Yeah. I'm I I want to yeah. add to this too cuz yeah. so it's oh, awesome. I want to add to this too the Megafauna series, which I just am in love with. Oh yeah. And th- so there's work for Thank clients, you. but I feel like there's also a little bit of work that's just for that comes from you and comes from a space of letting people enjoy it. I don't know if you want to talk about that. Yeah, just trying to relive a, a fan uh, just trying to relive a fantastic moment in my life seeing a grizzly bear stand up on a rock, purse his lips sideways perfectly with the background working and everything and I took a picture just knowing it it was it was just fantastic that I got to get that in focus and everything I didn't mess up and so I ended up paint, started doing that and I started painting these when I got back home through, to get through the dark winters of California <laughs> but, you know that you can't be in the national parks half the time half the year those parks are closed down so that was my way of getting through the winters painting those and I turned them into a card series and those proceeds 100% of the profits go to whatever is floating my boat at that time. Right now it's going to the Wolf Rancher Cohabitation Project. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a guy, I'm not even sure where I heard about him. I bet it was on some podcast. But he's figuring out ways to let wolves and ranchers interact uh, or live on the same property without having to shoot the wolves. Yeah. He's discovered that if you circumnavigate the ranch on horseback, I think his name is Daniel Curry, maybe. Wish I knew his I can find him and we'll put him in show notes. But if you circle, if you, perfect. He, he's found that if you can put human sense and animal sense around the ranch, then wolves don't, are less likely to cross over. I'm sure he has a, he, he explains it so much better than me. But anyway, I think that's the kind of smart intervention we can do to keep our ranchers happy and our megafauna happy. We, I, I think we all want them on the planet. I mean, I, but I understand, I fully understand losing a calf. It's not a cheap donation to the rest of the, you know, uh, county to have wolves on your property. If you're a rancher, it's, it's, it, you can't do it. So we've got to think sort of more, I have an insight into how ranchers think. And I think I also have an insight into how people who want to conserve and pre- preserve things think. Um, Cause I have kind of a side. Yeah. And I think you also have a passion for megafauna. And so I think having all of those kind of coalesce into one space is, is perfect. And I, because I also, yeah. there's, there's two sides to that coin and it's a very complicated conversation. And I think we all do want the same things. It's just finding how we can all coexist in that space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And how to talk to each other about it. You know, uh, ranchers are a paranoid lot. They're living a hundred years ago. They're, they're living by the skin of their teeth half the time to get to the next paycheck. You've got to respect that. I agree with that completely. And I also, I've experienced it as a farmer and it's very much how I was raised to think. And I sometimes think that there's a disconnect in our understanding, especially coming from maybe an urban environment into that scope of 
how others think yeah. and how we bridge some of these more difficult conversations while making sure that everybody is seen and heard. I wonder, though, have you always valued challenging yourself? Because that seems true looking at your story in a lot of ways to to rise to a challenge. And I think for those of us that have some more, I'm going to speak for myself here, timidity and mm-hmm. some more reticence that I always view bravery as a challenge. And I love, I love rising to a challenge. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, no, for sure. That is uh, something I did this summer was hike in the dark in grizzly country. That was something I never thought I would be able to do. That was uh, almost by accident, but we had headlamps and it was, we got to the top of the mountain, saw the sunset, knowing that we would have to use the headlamps coming down. Wow. And I was, I was constantly questioning the whole way down. Like, are we talking loud enough? Are we making enough noise. And, but I was with people that knew what they were doing. And so that's, that was sort of the buffer to the fear. And I did it. And I'm going to take my kids hiking by myself this summer in grizzly country. I'm brave enough to do that now. At night? I don't think so. (laughs) I don't think so. (laughs) I don't think so yet. There's going to be a lot of hiking in grizzly country being right there. And I think... One of the things that I think bravery is to me is it's doing things despite the fact that you're afraid. It it's not it includes fear. Yeah, I'm doing these things because I'm scared of them. It's not because mm-hmm. I've conquered it. I'm doing it because it's a challenge. And yeah. it's a but it's a but I can it's a I can taste the challenge. It's close enough. I ha- and, and the more you read, the more you learn, the more you do, you get closer and closer to understanding how you can get over that that challenge. And I don't know what that is. It's just a process that feels good to go through. It gives you, you know, purpose, meaning, a goal, and it all feels good on the way. The journey feels good. It's been fun climbing smaller mountains to get to Mount Rainier. There's many things that have that have come from that that have nothing to do with mountaineering. <laughs> Other lessons of life. I think that mostly I think what comes out of it is, is sort of these, these greater life lessons and, and sense of Mm -hmm. something else. And maybe I problem solving comes to mind because I think that this is something that you also really have a knack for or an enjoyment Mm -hmm. of to break down a problem. And, and that is true. I do not live in problems for very long. I don't, I don't do many things that I don't want to be doing for very long. I do see ways out of problems. That is, I have, I have yet to sit in a problem for, for too long. I think that what a beautiful skill, uh, something I aspire to have mm-hmm. is to not sit in a problem mm-hmm. too long and mm-hmm. to be, to be brave enough to leave, right. To walk away from mm-hmm. a problem also. Yeah. Yeah. Knowing when to quit something is almost as important as knowing how to finish something. Um, one of the, one of the only goal I've given up so far, well, maybe that's not true, but one more recent one is the family band. <laughs> I, <my laughs> no, kids, you're not playing drums in the family band. No, they kind of don't, they don't like to perform. I keep trying to get us like little gigs and little performances and they don't want to. <laughs> so. My, uh, my, my husband's sister and, and her husband have a, they're, they are very much the family band and it is, mm-hmm. it is something to behold. Um, yeah. I don't want to keep you. I know you need to leave. Tell people where they can find you. Okay, I am on the social media stuff as Butterbean Studios. That is my graphic design 
business and it's uh, my website, www.butterbeanstudios.com. Yeah. Is there anything else? I don't think so. I think we kind of figured it out. Yeah. I think we covered, we covered a lot of ground. We really did. I still have more questions for you, but we covered a lot of ground. I could, I could talk to you all day. I could too. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll start thinking about that book too. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Groundwork Podcast. If what you heard today resonated with you, may I ask that you share it with your friends or leave us a review? This helps others find Groundwork. If you're looking for more, you can find us at GroundworkCollective.com and at Groundwork Collective on Instagram. I would like to give a very special thank you to China and Seth Kent of the band All Right, All Right for clips from the beautiful song Over the Edge from their album, The Crucible. You can find them at All Right, All Right on Instagram and wherever you listen to